Welcome to the Haber Show. This week's guest is Gerson Rosas, the president of basketball operations for the Minnesota Timberwolves and the man in charge of selecting the number one overall pick of the 2020 draft. And believe me, I tried many, many times on this podcast to get him to spill the beans on whom he's drafting, and you'll see if I did that successfully. Gerson is also the only Latino top decision maker in basketball operations in the NBA, and we'll discuss the social justice movement happening in the league, what the Timberwolves organization has done to combat both racism and COVID-19. Lots of interesting stuff there on the uh, coronavirus. Um, We'll also get an update on Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell and what the team needs are going forward. So without further ado, let's bring on Gerson Rosas. Gerson Rosas, who's uh, here with um, the number one pick. He's sitting the, he's sitting in Minnesota, away from the bubble, but finally some good news uh, it comes to Minnesota. Mini, the Minnesota Timberwolves finally moved up in the draft with the number one pick. And do you have to wake up in the morning and remind yourself you have the number one pick, or is it always on your mind? It's... It's, it's always a good feeling to make sure you're still with that number one pick. I think about it before I go to bed and when I wake up. But uh, no, it's definitely always on your mind, uh, especially a year uh, in an environment where we're at now. You know, it's usually typically, you know, you're, uh, you're locked in in draft meetings uh, with the staff, uh, with the organization. But uh, that's not happening at this point, at least physically. It's more virtually. But no, you you think about it day in and day out. Uh, it's exciting for the organization. It's exciting for the community and exciting for the plan, you know, and the work that we've put into uh, this organization to catch a break at that level uh, really allows us to take a big step forward. Can you put me in your shoes on draft lottery night? Like what that experience was like in a pandemic where you're virtually doing the draft lottery, what that was like for you? <laughs> You know, it, it was interesting. The, the, the 24, 36 hours before the lottery, uh, I was really at peace. I was relieved. Like, you know, it's the, the lottery process is very humbling. Like, you don't control lottery balls. You don't know, you know, what's going to happen. There's nothing you can do. Uh, I was really uh, relaxed in peace. Our guys were all over the place. But we're a pretty low-key group talking to coach. We christened our, our new draft war room uh, that day. Uh, and you know, we were just in there together, excited. Uh, I think, um, you know, it, it's interesting to see what you're more thoughtful about, you know, whether it's moving up or moving back, uh, because the collateral impact of that is so huge. You know, you don't control it, but yet it, it impacts your organization at such a high level. But we were good um, overall. It was, uh, it was good to be back together in the facility. It was good to be in that new room. And then as it played out, you know, you're, you're confident because you're still in it uh, till the very end. But, you know, when Chicago and Charlotte got picked, they're in the middle. You know, you're concerned because, you know, there's going to be two disappointed teams. And, yep. you know, how, how high of a jump are they taking? And, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was important for the organization. And it's little things that go a long way as you're trying to build a program. But you know, to, to move up the first time in the history of, of the team is, is one thing. To have D'Angelo representing us there uh, is another. Um, you know, very ironic that it was him and Steph 
there at the end. <laughs> I, I, I've never been more excited to see a Golden State Warriors logo than when they opened up the uh, the second envelope. But you know, we've gone through through some challenging times here with with COVID and uh, you know the George Floyd tragedy here in our community. So it was it was a bright moment not only for our organization, not only for our fans, but for our community. It was great to see the fans excited uh, and and the people here and in Minneapolis, uh, you know, feel like something good happened to them. What is in the war room? Uh, a lot of technology. Like uh, what? Like, like, are you, do you have like, um, I'm imagining like a family feud type, like uh, revealing names, like a big board with, with all sorts of different machinations, kind of like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Is it, is it just, is it just like thousands of names? Uh, it's more digital than anything. I think the way we've reshaped it is, you know, we want uh, more of, you know, a ton of monitors everywhere uh, where we can connect, you know, uh, laptops and uh, different feeds, different data feeds uh, at all levels. Uh, and then uh, a lot of uh, writable and magnetic walls. So when we do get to uh, the meeting portion, we can we can put, uh, you know, uh, as you mentioned, prospects and players all over the place. But uh, as it was new and uh, everything was on the monitors, uh, you know, we had all our information pretty digital. So it was good to see, you know, how the odds were, uh, you know, what was going on, you know, kind of, you know, early uh, boards that we have going into that. And, you know, just as we evaluate everything together, but, you know, it's, it's for the you know the, the person that sits in my seat. It's an exciting time because it's an opportunity to impact uh, your organization, both from you know a drafting offseason, free agency, uh, trading period. It's the draft is usually the initial start of it. So who are you going to draft? Oh man, I'll let you know whenever they decide draft day is. <laughs> <laughs> when when is draft like? When is draft day at this point? Have they decided? We'll use our full allotment of time. You know, we'll, we'll make it before the buzzer sounds, but we want to be diligent. And, you know, I, our, our group has done an unbelievable job of preparing up to this point uh, through the uh, draft pools. And, and we feel good about what's there and where we're at. But I do think as an organization, we've got to be very diligent about our options with that pick, both picking and trading. Uh, but we'll see. I think it's a very fluid situation uh, being a pandemic. Uh, with everything that's going on with uh, the bubble in Orlando and, and how those playoffs, the finals play out and how we go into a new team building uh, season for the league as a whole. So for us, you know, there's a lot of challenges, uh, you know, in terms of the information and the evaluations and the data that's available. But at the same time, it's been an extended period of time. And as a talent evaluator, as an analyst, uh, you know, for us all, it's been a good time to just educate ourselves as much as possible and, and be prepared for whenever they do decide it's draft night. I don't want to paint, put you in a box of what role you served in previous stops in your career, but it seems like this is kind of your wheelhouse is, is getting the number one pick in the draft is being able to evaluate <laughs> a prospect overseas, um, watching tape incessantly. But is there a piece of the, you know, not work, not having those workouts or those interviews as much as you'd like in person that you're going to lose? Is there, is there like an in-person interview or something that you always go back to in your history and say, man, I'm not going to learn that about that. I remember, I remember having that in-person reaction with a player that changed everything I thought about that player, that prospect. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, and I'm a scout at heart, and uh, I'm, I'm passionate about that work, and I enjoy it. We, we're fortunate that we have a great staff that do incredible work. Um, so everybody does their part, but it is different. You know, for me, there's nothing like being on the floor with guys uh, and getting a sense to feel uh, who they are and what they do and how they do it. I think that's pretty special, something that, you know, hopefully as this process goes along, we might get an opportunity to do that, but it might be challenging. But, you know, it is. I think part of it is there are some, um, there are some safeguards by not doing it that way. I do think there's a big impact to being fooled uh, by an interview or by a workout, you know, you really have to look yeah. at the body of work. Uh, but there have been that moments for me in my career. Uh, and as you mentioned, and I won't get into the specific players, but you leave a workout and you're like, wow, uh, that talent's pretty special or, you know, just, uh, just the feel of an individual, their approach, their character, those things, the, uh, the things that you can't enumerate, you know, those are pretty valuable. Like what, what is uh, but, it that for a numbers guy says, what's the thing that you can sense in an in-person workout that you just can't get by looking at a spreadsheet or his film? I think from a basketball perspective, a lot of it is, is skill. Uh, you know, there's certain things to be fair to college coaches or international coaches. Their job is not to prepare guys for the NBA. Their guy, their job is to win games. Yeah. So, putting guys in NBA situations and getting an opportunity to see them perform uh, under those conditions uh, are often things that you don't typically see in those surroundings. But, you know, it's everybody does it differently. Everybody values different things uh, as they evaluate prospects. And, you know, as, as much as you can feel good about a prospect, you can also be fooled uh, by a prospect and, you know, uh, Players are incredibly polished at this stage. Agents do an incredible job of preparing their clients for this process. So uh, from an evaluation group, we really have to decipher through all that noise and uh, figure out who's who. So you, you've been pretty active on the trade market since you've taken over for, uh, for to running the basketball operations. What, what If you were looking to make a trade at the number one pick, what are some of the things your organization is valuing that you'd be looking for? You know, I think at, at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of value with the number one pick. Uh, and, you know, it's pretty historical to move that pick. You you want good value in return. Uh, I think we're in a different situation going into this draft and having the number one pick and that we're fortunate. You know, we have a franchise pillar in Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, we did our work at the trade deadline and we've been able to acquire a guy like D'Angelo Russell, a young all-star. Uh, so for us, this number one pick, it's an opportunity to find the best player moving forward that can complement that group, or it's seeing what, what the market will yield uh, for that pick and seeing if we can get a guy within that time frame uh, that can help, that's complementary to what we're trying to do and can help our program move forward from a high-end talent level. But that's a part of it. You know, we're fortunate we have three of the first 33 picks with 17 and 33 in this yep. draft as well. Uh, we're a young team. I, I feel like there's good depth uh, to this draft. So whether we're picking players, I feel good about our ability to build off of that or whether we're trading for now or, or future assets. Uh, the stage where we're at as an organization, it requires us to be very diligent and be very thorough to know what all our options are. What was the craziest war room you've been a part of on draft night? You know, with the Rockets or whatever, like, like a, dra a draft day trade that just blew your mind trying to get it all working together. 
Uh, I would say it was it was back in Houston, and uh, it was the draft where uh, uh, Gerald Green was in and Danny Granger. Uh, you know, two guys that uh, you know through that process uh, were just falling in the draft uh, from where they were falling and the way teams moved and uh, positioned themselves and the trades. Uh, it, it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty volatile. I, you know, uh, I, I think it's, it was similar to uh, the draft where uh, Charlotte took Frank Kaminsky in that pick. Yeah. Uh, just the, you know, anytime there's a slider or the league values certain players and they're falling. Uh, and I think those are pretty remarkable. And, and you remember those because of the activity and the hope that you can climb in, you know, to, to do a trade or to get a guy, but it's, you know, every draft has its own identity, uh, its own surprises, its own question marks. You know, it's it's tough. And I believe there's talent in every draft. It's just up to the organizations to do the job to find it. And, and as you know, that's a hard job. There's no secret formula here. There's no secret sauce. It's about making the right decision and picking the right guy for you, making sure that he stays healthy, he develops and gets an opportunity to become all that he can be. So you've talked about how nice it is to get the number one pick and how fortunate you are as an organization to get that um, after a tough year. The NBA right now is dealing with not having their voice heard or players have boycotted, strike, well, however you want to call it. Um, the NBA has postponed its games um, indefinitely. It looks like we're going to be coming back here this weekend, either Friday or Saturday. And what has it been like for you as the first Latino uh, president of basketball operations running an NBA team? What is it like been for you to be looking at the NBA in this moment from the outside and how much have you been involved in the talks with the league and what to do going forward? I mean, it's, it's incredibly personal. Uh, not only uh, being uh, a Latino in this role, uh, but understanding my players and understanding what they're going through, uh, the impact uh, personally that we've had here with the George Floyd tragedy and happening in our market, um, seeing how it, it's impacted our players. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible time in history uh, for good and bad reasons. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of our players and I support what they're doing. Uh, not only the Minnesota Timberwolves, but NBA players, because, uh, at this stage in time, where we're at, everything that's happened, uh, you know, enough is enough. And I think there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of disappointment. We're going through a pandemic. And yet, you know, we continue to see these social injustices. And uh, it's, it's a matter of how do we create real change? And our, our, I've seen our guys, our, our Timberwolves, grow up in front of our eyes, you know, whether it's a guy like Carl Anthony Towns through all the the uh, tragedy he's been through personally, or a guy like Josh Kogi, you know, pick up the opportunity, take the baton and raise their voice and say, hey, I've got to do something. And as an organization, you know, we've done everything we can to support them from ownership, front office, the coaching side, we've been very active. You know, we can't be uh, silent. We, uh, we can't just sit by the side and and not do anything it's it's impacted all of us too often and you know it, there's there's no simple solutions uh there's no simple process to getting it 
that, you know, getting it to where it needs to be. Uh, but it's going to take unified efforts. And I applaud our players for the stand that they took yesterday uh, in the league for supporting them and the teams. You know, it's we're, we're very fortunate to be part of the league that we are. We've got incredible leadership uh, with Adam and with our players, with our teams, with the union. We want real change. And I think the conversations that are being had right now in organizations in Orlando, uh, throughout the country are very important conversations. Uh, I think what the Bucks felt and what they decided to do was something that a lot of not only players, but uh, coaches, front office teams, organizations were feeling. And there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. Uh, there's a lot of disappointment uh, that this continues to play out. And just like it happened here in Minnesota, it's happened in, in Milwaukee. Uh, there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of pain. And we all want to come together to be a part of the solution. You talk about the solution. Um, I find myself asking, and I'm white, so I should f- check myself here when I ask this question is when the players are protesting and boycotting, one of the first things I think of fairly or not is, well, what's the end game? What's the objective here? Is that asking too much of players to have a uh, specific plan or objectives or goals? Or is it too early to be asking that of the players? Because on on the other side of the token, it's like black men and women are being oppressed. It's not like they're supposed to come up with the solution if they're the ones who are suffering. And it's not like if a kid is getting bullied on a playground, I I don't go to the, the kid who's getting bullied and say, hey, how can you do better to, to solve this problem, right? It doesn't make much sense to frame it that way as like, okay, what NBA players, what, what's your goal here? Um, how do you read that is, as, as someone who's a leader in an organization who's not white, who hasn't been operating in a position of privilege and feels like, are, are, are you put in a situation where so much is being asked of you that isn't gonna be asked of the majority? in situations like this in oppression? I think it, it takes a lot of uh, humility and understanding uh, because it's a solution to your point uh, that has to be taken up by everyone, uh, you know, not just our players, um, you know, not just the league or not just the union, not just teams, it's everybody. Uh, the reality is this is a problem that if, if it's affecting any of us, it's affecting all of us. And the mindset, the understanding, I give Coach Saunders a ton of credit um, you know, I give a lot of our staff a lot of credit going into this process. It's been a very humble attempt of, hey, let's understand, um, let's know what's going on, and how can we do our part uh, as an organization to support that change. But realistically, uh, it, it's all of us, and it's something that we've got to change. And there's short-term uh, opportunities and there's long-term opportunities to have real change. And some of it is by starting with the voting, which is an incredible, incredibly important uh, initiative. And then how do we change uh, our communities, uh, you know, from a local to a state, uh, even to a, a national perspective. And we all take part in that. So it's not fair to say, hey, it's on the players to figure that out, or it's on the players to work through that. We all got to come together. And these conversations uh, have been incredibly powerful for our, our organization. Uh, myself uh, being a minority and being able to see how we've been able to come together. And there, there's been some hard ones. There's a lot of 
you know, pain and agony and frustration and, and disappointment. Uh, but at the end of the day, everybody's coming together uh, with the purpose of changing uh, the environment and, and the standards that we're living in. It's just the reality of it is it takes time. And I know that's frustrating and disappointing yeah. for everybody to hear and to continue to see what's going on. The reality is it happens much more often than we want, than what we would like. Uh, but in reality, if, if we don't come together and we don't unite to create this change, it's not going to happen by, by itself. And I think that's something that as an MBA body, we take pride in that we've got great leadership that's allowing us to attack some of those things. And by no means is anybody here perfect or anybody here has all the answers, but collectively and together, we're trying to do the right things, uh, even if it's just the simple things to create greater change. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. This is Mike Tirico introducing you to Sports Uncovered. When I lose the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. Quote unquote, I'm back. I'm back. The two-word facts from Michael Jordan announcing the most famous comeback in NBA history. That's the most impactful two words ever. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the conversation. You know, a lot of people um, from certain parts of the country might look at NBA players or NBA people and say, just shut up and dribble. Like, get out of, get out of politics, get out of social justice movements, and just play basketball. The Minnesota Timberwolves have not taken that approach. The, the Minnesota Timberwolves have actually been at the forefront of trying to find uh, solutions for COVID. And I, I kind of think that people might dismiss the value of sports and just say, hey, this is just entertainment. But you guys have actually used the Timberwolves, val- you know, the brand, um, its place in the Minnesota community, the NBA community, as a way to push forward uh, a saliva direct, you know, testing, saliva testing uh, proto- uh, program that actually is cheaper, more effect, more, you know, quicker option for not just NBA players to get tested for COVID-19, but also for the, for the society at, at, at large. So can you kind of explain how that came to be? Because Robbie Sika has been an, an amazing you know, played an amazing role in trying to get this forward. And he's a big part of your organization. And I don't think people quite understand how basketball can actually push for a COVID-19 solution to help America. Yeah. And as you know, Tom, perspective is everything. And, and I agree, you're, you're going to have people from, from both sides of it trying to minimize or maximize sports. Uh, the reality is sports brings people together uh, and whatever the sport may be in whatever part of the world may be, it brings different individuals together. I say that because that's the premise of who we are as an organization. And yeah, we are a, an NBA organization, but we're so much more because of our people and our staff deserve and our players deserve so much credit. What we're doing here by design has been different. Uh, we have a the, the most diverse front office uh, in the NBA. Uh, we've got a coaching staff that's super creative, uh, modern. Um, you know, we can't just compete like everybody else competes. And unfortunately, we're going through 
challenges and tragedies, but I do think that brings out the best in people. And uh, what we're about, uh, you know, an individual like Dr. Robbie Sika, uh, his passion, his focus uh, for the challenges at hand is, is inspiring. And as an organization, as an organization, our pillars are innovation, player-centric, family-oriented, and championship-driven. And we look to maximize that not only on the basketball court, but off the court. And for us, as experience have come, we've tackled them. And we've tackled them with an approach of not only helping ourselves and helping our players and helping our staff, but helping the community and the world around us. And whether it was, you know, the, the tragedy with Jackie Towns and, and losing her to COVID, that, you know, that really inspired in us a need and a desire and a passion to give back. And working with partners like, the Mayo Clinic, or even experts like Andy Slavitt. Yep. Uh, basketball, this market, our network allows us to connect with incredibly talented people. And we've done this, the Saliva Direct Project is something that'll definitely help the NBA, it'll help sports, but it'll also help the community. It'll help schools and universities and large platforms with more affordable and more accurate testing, which, uh, you know, for COVID is a game changer. And Robbie Sika spent endless hours uh, committed to putting that group together, seeing that project through. Uh, but there were a lot of individuals that were involved. You know, the, the issues in our community, the societal justice pieces are, are important. And our players have been very passionate about it. And as an organization, this is where the rubber meets the road. And it's not just about words, it's about actions. And we've, we're very proud of the fact that we've had, whether it's players, staff members, uh, people from our organization have stood up at a time of need to help others. And it, it's impacted our world. Yeah, I was just watching. You guys did a, a new video with uh, Josh Akogi. He was doing a, um, an interview with, with Kurt Joseph, the assistant strength coach. Um, it's called Voices on YouTube. You're putting out kind of player – you talk about being player-centric – Players are doing interviews um, and videos about their. Uh, I'm, I got to watch out for for Josh. He's going to take my job. Um, but that, like, is that part of part of the vision? Is is empowering your players and empowering them to speak out and empowering them to be not just uh, basketball players, but also individuals in the community that you feel like you're you're uplifting them beyond just a, a name on a stat sheet. Absolutely. Uh, you know we've. You know, you're talking about a guy in Josh who's 21 years old and has grown up with, before our eyes. Uh, you know, he, he has an incredible story of, of being in Atlanta. He's, you know, originally from Atlanta and, and being there during the uh, tragedy with Amari there and, and, and that death. And then he decides to come into Minneapolis when we start doing our individual workouts. And the weekend he comes in, uh, that, you know, that week is the week where George Floyd dies uh, or is killed. and uh, you know, it hit him home. And as a 20, 21 year old um, individual, you know, it just, it, it hit him, it hit him in his heart. And he said, I, I can't be a part of this anymore. I got to do my part. So to see his growth, to see his maturation has been powerful. And we've been fortunate to be able to support him and help him and give him a platform. But it, for us, it's, you know, we can't do the cookie cutter approach, you know, from one through 15, we have to take our players in and help them and motivate them and, and strengthen them to become the best, not only players they can be, but the best people they can be. And to me, that's what builds a commitment to the organization. That's what builds a bond in terms of your culture, your environment. And 
we've been successful in doing that and connecting with our players. And we know we've got a long way to go. We've got a lot of work to do, but we're building a very strong foundation that will allow us to have success on the court and off the court. How's Carl doing? He's, you know, it's anytime you have a, a tragic loss like the one he's having, it's difficult, but he's got an incredible heart. He's got incredible character. Uh, he's always more concerned about others than he is himself. Uh, but life is different, unfortunately. You know, you lose somebody like your mother uh, and as close as they are and as special a woman as she is, it's heartbreaking. Uh, but it's he, he's doing well. It's been good to see him. He's, he's been here in Minneapolis uh, most of the offseason. Uh, it's been good to see him in the facility. It's been good to see him around our staff and, and our players with guys back in the market. But you know, it's not the same. And anybody that's gone through that knows uh, it'll never be the same. Uh, mm. But, you know, he, he comes from an incredible family. His, his mother and his father did an unbelievable job with him. And it speaks to how hard that loss was, is how close they were. But, you know, we continue to support him and help him through that process. Times, time heals some wounds and, and it'll take time. But, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a young guy that, that makes our organization very proud because of who he is and what he does. Have he and D'Angelo Russell taken the floor more than once? I mean, they played one game together. Have they gotten right. out on the court together and gotten to play actual basketball with each other since everything shut down? You know, fortunately, they've, they've been in workouts here, uh, but they spend a lot of time together, whether it's on the golf course or, or, or at each other's houses out here. Uh, but, it, you know, that bond's pretty special. And I do think it's one of the things that has helped Carl and has helped the organization. And Carl's been a big brother uh, to D'Angelo as he becomes part of our organization, even to the point I, I said it uh, lottery night, but, you know, it. It was, it was Carl's idea. He wanted D'Angelo to be the one that was representing us that night. So their bond, their relationship is pretty cool. What, what is the thing that you, you're most excited about that partnership? They obviously can score. We know that D'Angelo can get buckets and Carl can get buckets. I think the biggest question mark is, is defense, is can you build a, a top 10 defense around Carl Towns and D'Angelo Russell? And the jury's still out on that. Um, so what do you look yeah. at with those two? as foundational pieces for you guys that you are most excited about? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, yeah, I, I know, you know, it's the, the stage and the age where they're at, 24, 25 years old. Uh, they've got a lot of work to do, uh, but what they've done already is pretty impressive. You're talking yeah. about two guys that have been all-stars, a guy in, in Carl who's been all-NBA, uh, who's such an impactful player. Uh, but for us, they bring a very dynamic set offensively in terms of a playmaking, scoring point guard, and uh, maybe the most versatile, offensively gifted center uh, in the game with his shooting component and his, just his overall skill. Uh, the ability to have such a strong impact on the offensive end really gives us an identity and it gives us an opportunity to impact the game and to build something special uh, from the offensive perspective. You know, defensively, there's a challenge for them. There's a challenge for me in terms of putting more defensive personnel on this roster. There's a challenge for coach to build the right defensive system around them. Uh, but it's a natural progression. You know, I, I was fortunate uh, to have a guy like James Harden in Houston at that same age and to see his development, not that they're the same players, but it takes time and everybody wants it overnight. The reality is, it's you got to build it the right way. And that's our focus. And that's our goal. You know, these guys are early in their careers, but we need maturation. We need development. 
my goal and my responsibility, coach's goal and his responsibility is we not only have to have them, but our team built around them as they enter their prime, you know, they're 27, 28, 29. We have to be ready and prepared on the court and off the court to contend at the highest level. But defense is a big part of that. Our, our organization as a whole, um, you know, our, our character, uh, our focus uh, and, and maturation uh, for all of us moving forward uh, is, is a daily focus. But we're confident with them growing, developing. We not only can have a potent offense, but a balanced defense that can help us have the success that we need to have. Well, everybody has great offense these days, Gers. Hey, I, I, you know, I'll put, I'll put those two guys up against most, if not, I always got to fill out the rest of the roster. <laughs> yeah. Like the league is um, in the bubble. They're scoring uh, in the playoffs, 113.6 points per 100 possessions, 113.6. Well, to be fair. And you know, this Tom, we've had this discussion, uh, but it's, it's where the game is at, like where the rules are at, where the pace is at, where the shot selection is at. Now it comes down to who can do it the best and who can maintain it. And, and that's our goal. And that's our focus. Did you know that the, the league was going to copycat what the Rockets were doing? Just not, not necessarily firing up every three pointer, but the three point game has been ridiculous in this, in this postseason. Um, just you're seeing a lot of teams firing up threes and whether it's part of the fatigue factor of just like they, they had four months off and it's, it's harder to get to the rack. Uh, but but they're just launching threes uh, like cra- like Toronto Raptors are are just bombing away, and it's not like they can't shoot. Now, obviously, they can shoot. But did you did you know that at some point the league was going to catch up to the the Rockets' protocol of of trying to emphasize the three point shot? And and even though you know old hat old heads would be like crying about the the sanctity of the NBA game, do you think that um, do you think that it's just going to keep going like this? I mean, we in Houston, we definitely knew that that's where the game was going. And to be fair, it wasn't like it was our invention. It was it's become a more international game. It's become more of a European game. And I think uh, the reality of not only the value and the efficiency of shot selection, but also the spacing. I think the spacing is a game changer right now. And defenses were so strong for so long. You know, the focus became how do you attack them? How do you change that dynamic? of making it more of a balanced game because defense for a long time just just ran the game and it, you had to react to it and but it's our game is so cyclical I'm sure there's great defensive minds that'll make the adjustments but at this point in time not only is there the value of shooting and shot profiles but the impact that you put on the floor uh, the opportunity and the platform that you give great scores great playmakers uh, great offenses by putting that pressure on the defense, I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Just how you change the game in terms of playing small, um, you know, and just putting more skill on the floor really changes your ability and dynamic to defend it. And it's it's an exciting time just because of how strong the offensive development is and how creative coaches are being. But as I said, it's cyclical. I'm sure there's great defensive minds that are thinking through it and are going to impact the game. And then, it's like a game of chess, which makes our sport so fulfilling. So you talk about how it's becoming more international. I always wonder for people like you who study this day in and day out, is it fair to say a particular draft is strong or weak? Like, it, can, you, can you know going into a draft worth 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds that, 
hey, this is projecting to be a good draft or, or a weak draft. Like, does that stuff drive you crazy? I mean, it, it, I have a pretty uh, obvious bias sitting in the seat that I'm sitting in today. But <laughs> It's an extremely I, I, strong draft, and there's only one yeah, good player. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big believer. Uh, there's, there's, there's talent in every draft, but you can't grade a draft until at least – uh, three or four years out uh, because the development of players and that's what makes our job so complicated. It's not about just picking the right player. It's about, you know, the player being picked into the right system, health opportunity and the execution or the maximization of that talent. You know, the, the reality is we don't know, you know, everybody has a quick narrative on certain drafts uh, and even this one in particular. And a lot of it is, is is based on a lack of data. We've got top prospects in this draft who didn't finish their seasons uh, that were cut short very early on in the yeah, year. Wiseman played what three games? Yeah, there's guys that didn't didn't finish their seasons. So uh, you know, I take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I, I, people talk about, oh, this is the Anthony Bennett draft all over again, and the reality is the reigning MVP uh, was taken in that draft. So it's the responsibility falls on us. We've got to make the right selections. We've got to make the right choices and find the right players. But in any sport, every year there's talent in the draft. Teams just have to do the, 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 the hard part, which is finding and matching that talent with the opportunity and, and pray for uh, and develop good health as much as possible. Uh, but that's our challenge. And uh, in, in, in the role that I play, I, I cherish that opportunity. I love the opportunity to be able with our staff to evaluate the draft and to build our team uh, through the draft as we're doing this year. But it's incredibly challenging. The odds are against you. Nobody bats a thousand in this thing. But we feel, we feel good about this draft. We feel good about the depth in the draft. And, you know, over time, it'll show its true value. I don't know if I asked you this question when I wrote the piece last year about why we're not getting better at the draft. I did like a deep dive into the correlation of talent in the draft, whether the best players are being picked in the top 10 picks versus the back end of the draft. And it doesn't seem like we're getting better at the draft. Like systemic, like looking at this empirically, it doesn't seem like all the information that you as, as the basketball decision maker have at your fingertips in 2020 it's like beyond comprehension compared to where we were at 20 years ago or, or even 10 years ago. But do you think that there's, I don't know, paralysis by analysis sometimes when you're just, you have so much information about a player or a set of players that you tend to just get overwhelmed with that information or what do you think is going on there? I think, you know, initially it's what I said earlier, you know, it's not just one step process of success or failure. Oh, hey, did you pick the right player? Because uh, that's not how it works out. Unfortunately, life happens. You know, you look at the Greg uh, Oden, Kevin Durant draft and you wonder what if, you know, the reality is, you know, one guy stayed healthy and, and one guy didn't. Uh, but at the end of the day, you need time um, to, to figure out what happened and tell the story of not only the draft, but the selection at, at different points. And the second thing, there is a lot more information. And there is, with that comes some uh, paralysis by analysis. There's also uh, a lot of noise uh, through that process. And the reality is we're dealing with human beings. You can't enumerate everything. You can't formulate everything. It's not you know, uh, on, on a spreadsheet where you get all the answers. Uh, at, at the end of the day, 
you have to make decisions as an organization and the selection of a player, the development and the maturation. I mean, you know, look, look at different organizations, the choices they made. It, it doesn't naturally happen after one year, two years, three years, four years. Sometimes it takes time. And a lot of times teams will cut bait and it's the right thing to do or it's done too early and players have success in, in other markets. So it's, it's, it's a hard platform to get right. Uh, there's a lot of organizations that do a really good job, but I would say part of that is tied into player development uh, because some organizations like the Miami Heat and San Antonio Spurs have been great at knowing you know, who to draft and how to develop that talent into their system. Uh, the reality is they've had uh, a lot of stability from the coaching perspective, so you can build up that acumen over time. You know, what does the system need? How do we develop these players? A lot of organizations, especially ones that pick early, don't have that continuity. So it adds another layer of risk and fail rate uh, that makes it hard uh, because the ability to establish culture, to establish systems, to establish philosophy, allow you to develop your players. And, you know, that's a challenge that, that every organization has. Let's say you draft a player. Let's say you, uh, say you draft me. Okay. It's not going to happen, but uh, it's, let's say you draft me. How soon am I going to be playing in games with Car Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell? Uh, you, you know, for us, the goal is we would be thrilled for you to go from day one. Uh, but the reality is there's, there's not a lot of finished products that come in the draft. And a lot of it has to do with the stage that you're in and the competition that's there. Uh, we, you know, we want to build a base where we have deep talent and there's competition to get on the floor and play with our guys. Uh, but at the end of the day, you don't develop unless you play. And that's why we're fortunate to have uh, the G League. I, I look back in, in Houston, uh, the year we drafted Clint Capella and his, his rookie year, he played in the G League exclusively the whole year. And yet we have an injury late in the season. And because of his development and his ability to be ready to play, he's starting uh, game five against the Golden State Warriors uh, in the Western Conference Finals uh, that season. You so, wouldn't have any problem put taking a number one pick and putting him through the G League for a while? I mean, every prospect is different. You know, I, I would look at a guy like uh, Giannis, who should have been number one in that draft. He needed to be in the G League. And he, he was a raw enough prospect. And John Hammonds and the Bucks deserve incredible amount of credit for making that pick. And the other, you know, 14, 15 teams, it just shows how hard that evaluation is. But uh, if you knew you were going to get an MVP player uh, in year five or year six or year seven, why would you not put him in a position to develop and grow and develop, not just from a physical aspect, from a mental aspect, from a basketball aspect? Our G League, our minor league system is one of the best in the world. And it's so integrated with NBA teams now that any of those players, the reality is most of the players in a draft are going to be in the G League at some point. And that's a credit to our league. That's a credit to our leadership because it's become a big part of, of who we are as an NBA organization. Where does it stand with the A teams that were not invited to the bubble and your ability to do workouts or have any sort of com competitive uh, contest with other teams or your own team where does that stand and what would you like to see the NBA do here um you know we're, we're fortunate that we've had a lot of player participation during this offseason even if it's been individual workouts uh we've been fortunate that uh guys have stayed in the market and have worked hard but uh you know what the league approved um the last couple of weeks uh is a game changer for us the ability to come together for a two or three week period 
and have five on five team activities to have the ability to connect and bond and grow as a team is incredibly important for us. You know, we're the youngest team in the NBA. Uh, we made, I mean, we shifted 13 out of 15 roster spots last year uh, at the trade deadline and didn't have the opportunity to build off of that continuity uh, or uh, the bonding that goes along with it. So for us, uh, it gives our guys an, uh, something to shoot for as, you know, they've been consistent with individual workouts. Now we have the opportunity to come together and do more team-oriented, uh, more philosophical work, whether it's offense, defense, uh, or, or player development work that they need to do while being around each other. I mean, it's this is a tough environment that we're all living in in a pandemic, and the ability to be in a safe space for two weeks and to enjoy each other's company and to be around one another and to be around the coaches and the front office and the staff is is incredibly important for the development and maturation of our organization. When do you think the next season is going to start and what needs to happen before we see the restart for 2020, 2021? I mean, putting aside this season, hope everything goes well and they finish out the season safely and healthily and everything ends on time relatively. What do you think about next season and what you'd like to see? Yeah, no, it's, you know, it was incredibly disappointing and frustrating not to be part of the Orlando bubble. Uh, but we understood that we needed to be good teammates. And this is incredibly important for our league and for our future. Uh, you know, you see all the new developments similar to what Robbie Seek has done with Saliva Direct and that group and uh, where we're at in terms of the pandemic and a lot of the different treatments and developments that are coming into place because our goal and our focus is to be able to play in front of fans next year. And I think Adam Silver uh, and the leadership group of the league have made that obvious. I think Michelle Roberts uh, and the union want that as well. So uh, they deserve a ton of credit for what's going on in the bubble. Uh, you know, the league, the high level of basketball, uh, the high level of health and safety uh, is incredible. Uh, it's the best in sports right now, and they deserve a ton of credit. So the ability to finish uh, this season off uh, and to make sure that our players, our staff, our fans, our communities are, ha are healthy are incredibly important. And uh, whether that takes us into uh, December, January, February, whatever the case may be, we got to do the right thing for all of those uh, facets. And uh, we'll be ready, we'll be prepared, we'll do our part. But I do think as we enter more of a safe space in terms of COVID uh, and in terms of this pandemic, the ability for not only you know, our communities to be safe, uh, but for our players to be safe, our, our staff to be safe and to be healthy, I think is important. But recent developments are helping us on that. And it's why Orlando has gone well. It's why we're going into individual campuses and bubbles in our markets where we can train and develop. So fortunately, it's training the right way. Uh, but at the same time, we want to be safe and do it the right way and make sure that it's a sustainable platform for us moving forward. Do you think if the NBA moves towards uh, like mini bubbles, whether it's in Vegas or Orlando or what have you for like quadrants of the season? So like 20 games here, 20 games there, would you be open to that idea is having the season broken up into parts and maybe starting from scratch at every, you know, quarter of a season? I think at the end of the day, we just want to play and whatever is the safest option. <laughs> Beggars we'll, can't be we'll, choosers. We just, yeah. we just want to get out there. Yeah, but no, I think ideally our goal would be to be as traditional setting as possible. Uh, not only 
uh, you know, health and uh, will determine that in terms of where we're at with, with COVID and with the pandemic. But that's our goal. And I think as a league, uh, there's hope that we can get back to that. And, on, you know, if there's unfortunate turns and there's challenges, I think the bubble has shown that it's a good platform. And I know you're, you're big into, um, you know, the, the, the medical aspect of it, but we're seeing a lot of the benefits of, you know, the less travel, uh, the less back-to-backs uh, in our league and how that not only helps players, but it helps the quality of the game. And it's, it's exciting to see, you know, through all this craziness uh, that we've been able to trial run some of that and seen good results from. So before we wrap here, you still don't want to reveal what you're going to do at the number one pick. Are you sure you don't want to just give it away right here? Let me save it for the end of the, uh, of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Once, once I tell you it's, it, uh, we're offline, uh, I'll set the recorder on my phone. So I make sure I record it and then tweet it out. How about that? Absolutely. <laughs> um, that sounds like a plan. So uh, thanks so much, Gerson, and um, best of luck. Uh, stay safe, and uh, hopefully everything goes smoothly in, uh, in Orlando and everyone stays safe and um, we can get the Timberwolves back on the court soon. I appreciate it, Tom. Always great connecting with you, man, and uh, good, good reason to do it here. A lot to catch up on, so thank you. All right, I want to thank Gerson for joining me on the Haber Show this week. If you haven't listened to it yet, Go check out the NBA playoffs, kind of recapping what we've seen so far on the court with Amin Hassan from ESPN and SiriusXM NBA Radio. Uh, so go check that out. Um, and lots of stuff going on with the NBA. Uh, I'm sure in the next week, just a thousand more things will be happening worth talking about. So uh, stay tuned, stay safe, uh, and until next time on The Haber Show.